Have you lost your footing in church, or has the church lost its footing? Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and welcome to the God's Story podcast, and welcome again to my co-hosts, uh, Rido, Ian Reid, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, hi. Yes. Hi, oh, sorry, sorry yeah. I was muted. I was trying to be a good uh, co-host and mute myself. But you're always hello. a good, you're always a good co-host. <laughs> and a very special guest today is Anglican Bishop Todd Hunter. After four decades of ministry, Todd Bishop Todd is no stranger to betrayal and pain in the church. His new book from IVP Intervarsity Press America is called "What Jesus Intended: Finding True Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion." Hunter offers a vision for emerging from the rubble of bad religion and rebuilding faith among a community of sincere believers. Bishop Todd leads Churches for the Sake of Others, a diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, and was the founding pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Costa Mesa, California. He was formerly president of Alpha USA and the national director for the Association of Vineyard Churches. He's written a number of books and has held numerous academic positions. Bishop Todd, hi, welcome to the show. Hey Brent, hey Ian, great to be with you guys. Oh, it's a, a thrill uh, for for you to uh, for us to have you on the show. Now, um, this is a raw and honest read, Bishop. I've got to say, I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. But why, why I wonder, do we have such low confidence in the church today? Well, uh, you know, I can't obviously speak to the uh, Kiwi situation, although I can shamelessly ingratiate myself to your New Zealand audience by saying that I went to New Zealand once or twice when I was president of Vineyard Churches to do something Vineyard-esque. And I always tell people, prettiest place I've ever been on earth. Oh, so it's just so first, just a little shameful ingratiation. It is a very well, beautiful country, yes. I mean, so is the United States. Well, I haven't been everywhere, of course, but of the places I've been, it's, it's remarkable. Well, you know, since I've been uh, a first convert, 19 years old, you know, in the 70s, I've just had this instinctive curiosity about the intersection of gospel and church and culture. And here in America, you know, because of people like Gallup and Pew and Lilly and Barna and that sort of thing, we constantly have in front of our faces these statistics about people losing confidence in the church, leaving church, you know, weekly scandals, it seems like. And I've just always had this massive heart for those who are hurt by church, burned by church, sick of church, mad at church. And then together with all that, I've had this very passionate love for the person and work of Jesus. And I think that's what comes out in this book. Yes, and I think you argue that the Lord Jesus is our way back into the church, isn't he? Yeah. Um, can I ask you, though, I mean, you, you recount a lot of um, personal stories. How, how yeah. have you personally been hurt by the church over the years? Yeah, I mean, if I just think of my story, I, I was, um, we grew up in a very sort of stereotypical liberal, 1960s liberal United Methodist Church in Southern California. And that had its kind of oddness to me, obviously, as a new convert. Uh, I spent my first few years around what you might think of as kind of a fundamentalist atmosphere that had its, you know, pros and cons. And then later in the vineyard and around the worldwide charismatic and Pentecostal movement, I often say that. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of all that. And I, I don't know if the very few people in the world who would have seen more of that than I. And I just think back that, every, you know, the church is not perfect. It's never been perfect. And um, and in all that, I think I just experienced the downsides of it. And I, I recount those stories, not so much to say that, um, you know, I exist as this deeply wounded person, but just to say that I certainly empathize with the statistics. 
Like I, I wanted readers to know that I don't just read what Gallup or Pew or Lily or those kind of people say, but like I feel it in my bones, not just as an observer, but as a participant in the church. Yeah, for sure. I think we can all nod our heads in agreement with that. Um, you, you write about bad religion. I wonder, and Rita, I'm going to bring you in here too, because I'd like you to discuss the New Zealand context, please, because we never see bad religion in New Zealand, do we? <laughs> but Bishop Todd, what is bad religion? How, what are some of the characteristics of bad religion and how can we see it for what it is? Yeah, it's it's normally a, a perversion of something good or taking something good to an extreme. Like if you think of, you know, uh, Pentecostal or charismatic things, or you might think of uh, an extreme of taking a biblical truth too far and ended up like in legalism. It sometimes can be an abandonment where people abandon any notion of of scriptural truth or abandoned notions of a creator God who really does intend something. So it can go either ways. But what I think about it uh, and what I write about in this book has to do with think of Jesus saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, woe to you. And if you look at those woes in Matthew 23 and some of Jesus's other parables, you get a really good sense that Jesus recognizes what I playfully call bad religion or misguided religion or errant religion or polluted religion or something like that. There's a sense in which it's always been this way. In fact, Brent, thinking of your first question about how I experienced some of the effects of bad religion, again, it's always been this way. If you think of Jesus's first followers, at least four of the 12 had really major problems. I mean, Peter and uh, or uh, Peter denied him. Uh, Judas betrayed him. James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven on cities who they thought didn't welcome Jesus appropriately. So at least four of his first friends we're pretty messed up. And and can't you imagine that the, the night that Jesus, uh, that Peter betrays Jesus, that anybody who heard that, you know, the other eight were grumbling, like, what the heck is going on? So I, I think it's always been this way. And I, I wish I had the ultimate wisdom uh, to, to answer the question why God has allowed this to be. But it's so, and because it's so, I'm just in this book trying to give people a fresh view of Jesus so they can keep following him and make it in his people. For sure. The church has a messy DNA. I think it's um, yeah. it's always been that way. Rito, can I bring you in? The New Zealand context, please, and bad religion. Well, I think um, we really, in some ways, follow America just a few years behind, uh, kind of mm. the, the, the ways that they kind of go there. And I think one of the big things that, that's happened over the last probably decade has been that that buying into relevance. I think relevance is a good thing, mm. but again, it's it's an overemphasis, you yeah. know, as you see throughout all of church history and and pretty much every denomination has done this to some extent, that you overemphasize something good yeah. and you end up in a, and you end up ending up in a bad place. And I think probably the last decade or so has been the, the big thing here has been how do we be relevant, you know, kind of right. and it's meant that we've lost some of our core truths, we've lost some of our evangelistic mm. edge yeah in some ways because the sharpness of calling out sin in in a way that that's still gracious and still offering grace but not willing yeah. to call out anything at all as sin has kind of i think denigrated the gospel and uh yeah. probably lost some of the voice of the church mm. yeah do you want to respond to that bishop todd yeah i really hear you ian and um you know, seeking to be, quote, relevant, I can't think of a, 
a better synonym right now, is not an entirely bad thing, but we all can understand what Ian is saying about the bad aspects of it. But one of the things I note about Jesus, um, and I almost wrote a book about this, I don't think I ever will, but uh, just looking at his conversa- the conversations he has with people in the New Testament, he always meets people right where they are. And so sometimes we think, well, that's what we mean by relevant, but what Ian is saying is something different than that. For for instance, with Nicodemus, you you know, reading between the lines, you can kind of hear the Lord saying, oh, so you're a teacher, but you still don't get this. And he starts with Nicodemus that way, to the woman at the well. He speaks to her on her terms, to Zacchaeus, to Matthew, uh, Levi, and the people at that party that night. So Jesus had a way of always starting with where people were and meeting them on their terms, which is the good side of relevant, or what missiologists would call the good side of contextualization. But to Ian's point, Jesus was able to do that with ever, without ever compromising. Mm. Yes, he was an absolute genius, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, before we come on to the, the questions about how we how we gain a fresh hearing of Jesus, if I may, can I ask you, for people who are struggling in their churches, um, whether mm-hmm. they're churches of legalistic gracelessness or they're, they're not being taught the gospel or they're being burdened or they're being mm-hmm. guilted, we don't see that in New Zealand in the New Zealand churches, Rito, mm-hmm. do we really? When should people leave a church? Yeah. I remember back in the, I want to say it was the early, maybe mid eighties when John Wimber was uh, deeply connected to Fuller Seminary and was deeply connected to Peter Wagner, some research that Peter Wagner was a well-known missiologist uh, here in America and him doing some research showing Brent that much of the church transfer that we all wring our hands at is actually appropriate. Meaning it's just people thinking, well, I grew up in a church that, you know, was really evangelistic, but they really didn't help people mature very well. So then they find a church that helps them mature better. And so they're not leaving church for a bad reason. It feels natural and good to them. Or maybe they come from a church that really emphasized, you know, expositional Bible teaching, but really didn't understand much about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So then they find themselves in a charismatic church for five years or something. And Peter notes that a lot of that kind of church transfer is actually not the kind of church shopping that we all, you know, rightfully denounce. It has to do with people's spiritual growth. So on that level, I think people can leave, you know, whenever that sort of process is happening with them. But I think you're asking, Brett, on a different level. And that is, I would say that if you if you're being traumatized or hurt or in any way abused in a church that you need to let that be known to the right parties. And again, I don't know with all your worldwide listeners who the right parties are in a given nation, but that needs to be made known and you need to leave. There is no excuse for especially women or children or even adult males being berated or in any way abused or sexually harassed or something. Nobody nobody should tolerate that. I, I think where, where it gets hard, Brett, where people are looking for the kind of discernment you might be identifying is that when you feel like something just seems off here or something just doesn't seem right in the leadership team, that can be really hard. And and I think you probably should stay as long as you can be a redemptive presence and make a difference. And if in, if it, at some point you realize you really can't and there's there's no will in the leadership team to correct what's wrong, then that might be a time to leave as well. Rito, your questions? Yeah, that, that's a that's kind of a big one, isn't it? Around spiritual abuse in particular, mm-hmm. that that needs to be called out, and people need to move on. You know, kind of, yeah. uh, and find help. 
yes. around that if you can. Um, what to what extent? You know, kind of how do, how do we help people find healthy churches? You know, what are, what are some of the criteria that you would help you use for people to say, hey, this is going to be a place which is actually going to help you spiritually grow. It won't be perfect, and yeah. there may be hurt in there, but how how do you help people find a place? Yeah, that's right, Ian. I mean, underscoring your point that, or the point we made earlier that. Uh, even the the first church and, and Jesus's first followers weren't perfect. So we're never looking for perfection in a church. I think what we're looking for is what we would think of as, you know, so just sort of appropriate health and appropriate maturity that doesn't hit the the place of perfection, but it just, you can just tell this feels healthy and, and this feels mature and is not afraid of critique. That's a really big thing. Like, like if a leadership team is not willing to hear critique and learn and grow, that's like a red flag. But when you find one that is, that's a really bright green flag and a place where, you know, people are pursuing uh, Christ together and there actually is an openness and a, and a desire to learn and grow and, you know, be different, be better, that sort of thing. So, so there's often in those kinds of churches, there's an appropriate mutuality it doesn't mean that there isn't any leadership, um, but even where there is leadership, and even if it's hierarchical, uh, the nature of that hierarchical is one of mutuality, that we're seeking Christ together, we hold each other accountable, those sorts of values, I think, are honesty, um, humility, you know, those uh, those sorts of things I think are important in a good church. Yes. Let's come on to talk about um, story and the role of story in mm-hmm. bringing us back to Jesus, really, and, and hearing Jesus in a fresh way. You write that, and I love this, Jesus risked his whole being to place himself inside the biblical story. Now, I love that. What do you mean by that? Well, he had all kinds of chances uh, to not do it, right, guys? I mean, the Herodians would have loved him to have give up his point of view and to become political as they were. Um, the zealots, you know, would have loved Jesus to have given up his point of view and become a holy warrior. Um, you think of the Qumran sect, you know, the quietists, the pietists of his day who who thought the best way to be Jewish was to flee from society. And they went out and lived in the caves of the Qumran where, you know, we ended up finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Jesus had a lot of pressure on him, both religious and political, to be something different than who he was and to behave and teach different than the way he did. But he constantly said things like, well, I only say the things I hear my father saying, or I only do the things I see my father doing, or the son of man came not to do his own will, but only that of the father, or the son of man can do nothing on his own, only what the father gives him to do. So that's my imagination, Brent, when I write that, is that despite great pressure, he constantly put himself back into his father's story. And in so doing, he literally put himself in harm's way. I mean, in a way that none of us will probably ever have to. Um, he was putting himself in harm's way, both by uh, from civic authority and religious authority. Sure, and dealing with bad religion and confronting it head mm-hmm. on. My goodness, did yes. he, did he yeah. confront bad religion head on? Yeah. How do we restore our sense of God's story, do you think, and of our place in it? It's enormously evocative to me and imaginative for me to think, okay, before there was anything there was a trinity of beings, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And out of relational love and creativity, you know, we hear these words like, let there be light. 
And so this trinity of beings before there's anything had intention, had purpose for creating. And then you just think of the first couple chapters of Genesis and how creation unrolls out of this Trinitarian God. And then you have all the ups and downs of church history, just or of you know redemptive history, even just beginning in Genesis, right? With Cain and Abel and flood and tower. But then you have the calling of Abraham and this first hint that God's going to make a people through whom he's going to rescue and save and serve the world. And then you have all the ups and downs of, you know, uh, patriarchs and judges and kings and prophets and up to John the Baptist. And he starts talking about this thing, the Messiah and the kingdom. And then you have Jesus coming, preaching the kingdom and saying, I'm the beginning of the end. And if you come into this kingdom movement that I'm starting, if you follow me, then not not only will you be saved in the sense of your sins being forgiven, but you'll be saved in the sense of becoming a part of this cosmic story for God to heal the world. And then there's this lovely word in the Greek New Testament called telos, which means fulfillment or completion of purpose. And that's the story we're trying to inhabit. I can't think of a greater story. I can't think of a movie, a novel. I can't think of anything that tells a more compelling story than that. And so then Jesus explodes into the history of mankind. We see in him the embodiment of what God always intended for humanity and Israel. And then again, Jesus says these magic words, come follow me. Well, that's what I mean, Ian and Brent, when I talk about finding a story that makes sense of my story. Yes, I'm old and I'm male and I'm white and I'm middle middle to upper middle class and I'm a religious person, you know, there are certain demographic and social things about me, but none of those things constitute me. What constitutes me is I'm I'm very consciously, passionately following Jesus into this big God story that he not only invited us into, but he embodied what it meant to live in that story. He demonstrated it in his deeds of power. He explained it in his teaching, and I'm just trying to say yes to all that. I can't think of anything better to say yes to. Does American individualism, and we can say Kiwi individualism, Western individualism, does it does all that work against the story of God, do you think? Yeah, it absolutely does, because our whole lives we were told that true meaning comes from fulfilling our desires. No one ever suggested to us that some of our desires might be disordered. It was just, no, what makes you human is discovering the most authentic you, and then you should pursue that with your whole heart. And that's what it means to be human. And I get it. I don't fuss at people. I'm not mad at anybody. I don't dislike anybody. I would just want to say that's a partial truth at best, because some of our desires are godly and God-given. Others of them are profoundly disordered. And I don't just mean like sexual ones or anything like that. Lots of us have. I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to you know, as Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, I've spent my whole life, 47 years now, trying to figure out what it means to die to myself, to my disordered desires, so that I can pick up this new kind of life that Jesus is offering us, this eternal sort of life, life in the kingdom. And oftentimes to pick that up, you have to lay down an inferior sort of life. And you're right, that's very counterintuitive to the Western notion, you know, beginning with the French Revolution, maybe even before that, of this notion of we should be completely free from all powers, social, monarch, uh, political, uh, economic unfairness, et cetera, right? We should be able to throw all that out and just become completely free and autonomous human beings so that we can just 
um, create a life for ourselves. And I always want to say that's exhausting. I don't know anybody who's ever done it very successfully. I think it's way better and more peaceful instead of trying to create a life based on my mixed desires to discover a life like Psalm 139. You were you were formed in your mother's womb. Or think of the calling of Jeremiah or the calling of Isaiah, how they're reminded that something was going on before they were even born that's now alive in them. I would much rather try to discover what's what's similarly true about me than me trying to create a life. But but you're right, Brent. That's a big decision people have to make. It's a big part of choosing to follow Jesus. Mm. Uh, Ian, your comments, thoughts, please. And it's interesting. So I, I totally agree. And that's really the heart of our podcast is that kind of the liberating mm. kind of thing that, that Jesus does in inviting us into this story, uh, yeah. that we don't have to create our own story, that yeah. we become a part of his story. And I think, the for me, the, the strange part of that is, particularly in... Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul saying that there was this mystery that was hidden. Mm. Now it's been revealed. Yeah. And that history, that mystery is the building of the church, the, the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one people. And this is the fullness yeah. of the filling up of the Godhead that when you look at the church, it doesn't feel liberating. <laughs> you know, it doesn't yeah, feel yeah. like right. this, this is the pinnacle of that life, you know, the intersection of that life. Yeah. Is this fragile thing that hurts people yeah uh, that just looks from the outside it just does not look like a healthy place all the time but yeah when, when you do experience it at its best it is it is that uh, it is heaven on earth but when you see it at its worst it's awful at the same time <laughs> yeah that's so tr- that's so true ian like if you think i want to give up my story and live in someone else's story even if it's the you know almighty world's one true creator god even if it's that to, to give up my story for any other story, you're right. It feels really counterintuitive. Like, why would anybody do that? It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't at all feel freeing. It feels constraining. And it's not until you like step into it um, that you realize, oh my gosh, my intuitions have actually been failing me my whole life. But I would say virtually everybody's intuition is, well, who would give up their own story for someone else's? That like makes zero sense until you find out that we're all living these sort of marred to somewhat to some extent dehumanized life and we don't realize that when Jesus said you know take up your cross deny yourself and follow me he didn't mean become a nothing a doormat he meant you'll find a superior sort of life in my story that like you can't see it now you know think of all the texts in the bible about blindness or darkness or you know deception or that sort of thing like we can't see or think of paul saying we see now through a glass darkly we just can't quite yet see how liberating it is for humans to be human as god intended not human as our current structure of desires i mean you know mm. feel like they should make a sort of a story yep we become our stories become woven into the tapestry of the universe. Really, I think, yeah. and part of God's story. It's amazing. I found it liberating over, yeah. over the years, learning more and more from Scripture. Last question, Bishop Todd. We could talk all day yeah. because there's so much. Here. How is Jesus the cure for bad religion? Well, because he embodies um, again humanity as God intended. So you think of Adam and Eve and what God intended when he said to them, hey, look at this amazing new creation. Come come work with me in it. Come be my 
my co-partners and come rule and reign with me in this. Well, you know, human humanity fails, obviously. Well, Jesus is humanity as God intended. So what we see in his kindness, yet as Ian said earlier, that kindness never led him to compromise. Um, his generosity, his graciousness, his, like think of the space he made for the woman at the well to like be herself. Well, there was no compromise in that. He was being human as God intended. So you might think of the um, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, kind love, kindness, gentleness, peacefulness, you know, long-suffering, that sort of thing. That's humanity as God intended. And that's why Jesus is like the real deal cure for bad religion. And then if you think of Israel as God intended, his chosen people, you know, if you if you think of um, Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Well, why? Because you're going to bless the whole earth. So now you think of Jesus teaching, explaining what's real, driving out demons, healing the sick. You know, his he's he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then you can know the kingdom of God is upon you that the rule and reign of God is upon you. And, and when the rule and reign of God comes, there is no more evil. There is no more demonic. There's no more sickness or death or any of that. And so that's what I mean when I say Jesus is humanity as God intended. He's Israel as God intended. And being that is the positive cure for bad religion, right? You might know the phrase, I don't know if this is an American phrase or not, but when they're teaching uh, people who work in stores how to how to understand or be able to identify a counterfeit $20 bill or a counterfeit hundred is they make them study the real. And it's in studying the real that they learn what a counterfeit looks like. And that's what I think I mean. I, I want readers, my heart breaks for everybody who's been broken and hurt and discouraged by the church. And in this book, I want to say, I get it. I feel you. I don't criticize you. As much as a human being can, I empathize with you. But there's this real thing. And what if we turned our attention back to the real thing as a way of helping us understand and cope with bad religion? Yes. Ian, final thoughts, questions? I think that, that's a beautiful image, isn't it? Studying the real will show mm-hmm. us who the, the counterfeits are. And even in that, if we as those in church leadership are able to, to say to their people, Hey, you need to study Jesus so you can tell me how I'm not the real, the real Jesus, so that you mm-hmm. aren't relying on me as the real Jesus. But and and help me in that by saying, hey, Ian, or whoever, you know, you, you really struggle with this, or you do this, and, and and it hurts people. And I'm able to humbly kind of take that criticism and say to myself, yeah, I do do that. How to help me mm-hmm. not do that? Uh, help me to be like Jesus as well. That. Hopefully, that that does create healthy places and, and loving communities where there can be an ongoing discussion about how we are not Jesus, but we can point each other to Jesus mm-hmm. uh, so that we can love each other well in that. Yeah. Amen. Yes. Rito, I think you're a fairly humble character. Anyway. You don't uh, know me very well then, Brent, do you? I've known <laughs> you quite a long time, brother. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you. Anglican Bishop Todd Hunter and the new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, is called What Jesus Intended, Finding True Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion. Bishop Todd, thank you so much for your time and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. And Rito, as always, thank you, brother. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. 
to ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.